lock your doors, close the blinds, change your passwords. This is the Dry Cleaner Cast. Welcome to the Dry Cleaner Cast, a podcast that takes a new look at the war on terror, its legacy, and espionage in the 21st century. This podcast is written, edited, and presented by Chris Carr. This month, we're joined by author Jeremy Duns, and we are discussing the life and works of Ian Fleming. In the last section of today's chat, Jeremy will be discussing his new book on Ian Fleming. And in this book, there's some very interesting new information about Ian Fleming's activities during the Cold War. Some of them might be considered controversial, so do keep listening for that section. I just want to give a quick shout out to some of our listeners. I'd like to say hello to Penny Wint, to Shane Whaley, to Thomas Lumo. To Matt Fulton, I always enjoy our interactions. Thank you so much for following us on Twitter. Chris Kurgen Venn, I hope I pronounced that correctly. Abigail Clay, hello to Martin Gray, to Andrew Scott, Roger Doyle. I also want to say a shout out to some of our new listeners out there. Um, our listeners in Plumpton, Australia, in Paris. Also to our new listeners in Tel Aviv. And to some of our regular listeners in Detroit, San Francisco. Washington, D.C., and as always, hello to our listeners in Moscow. If you enjoy what we do, please feel free to connect with us on Twitter by going to at DryCleanerCast. I run that account, so you'll be directly interacting with me, which might be a good or a bad thing, depending on how you look at it. Um, I always enjoy hearing from our listeners. Also, don't forget to rate us on your preferred podcast platforms. We're on iTunes, Acast, Pocket Cast, just to name a few. So yeah, feel free to rate us on there. It really helps the show because it helps boost us up and uh, and helps people discover the show. If you're enjoying what we do, please do share it with your friends, family, co-workers, and maybe even your enemies. So thank you. I hope you enjoyed this month's episode. And a quick disclaimer before we begin. Opinions expressed by guests on this podcast do not necessarily represent those of the filmmakers and sponsors of the film, The Dry Cleaner. Jeremy, welcome to The Dry Cleaner cast. Hi, Chris. Thanks for having me back on. Yeah, no, is it, is it your second visit now? I'm losing track. It is, yeah. Excellent. It is, yeah. Excellent. Well, good to have you back. Just for the benefit of listeners who may not have heard our previous episode together, could you just tell us a little bit about yourself? Uh, yes, my name is Jeremy Duns, and I am a writer. I've written uh, several spy novels, four spy novels, and one non-fiction book. And I've also uh, done some journalism, including uh, two books about James Bond and Ian Fleming. Uh, one of them, Rogue Royale, is about a lost uh, Bond script for Casino Royale from the 60s. And the other one, uh, Diamonds in the Rough, is um, a collection of various articles uh, about the literary and cinematic Bond universes. 
And they're both very good and actually partly inspired this conversation today. But uh, So um, we're going to have a quick chat about Ian Fleming because it was his 110th birthday. um, Yeah, it was, yeah. On the 28th of May, which unfortunately I completely missed just because life got in the way. But um, I did try and have a vodka martini in his honour on the day. Um, So, so Jeremy, um, what is it that inspired your interest in Ian Fleming and his work? Well, I came uh, to Ian Fleming a little bit in a roundabout way. I um, started becoming interested in spy fiction uh, more generally when I was in my 20s. And then the more that I read, uh, the more about spy fiction and the history of spy fiction, particularly British spy fiction, of course, uh, Fleming completely uh, dominated the genre. And it's almost impossible to ignore Fleming if you if you look at that topic. And I mean, I'm, as you can hear, British. And I mean, if you're British uh, and you grow up, you can't really avoid uh, James Bond. You know, the films are on TV and all, all that kind of stuff. So obviously, I was familiar with the James Bond films. But it wasn't really until my 20s that I started uh, looking at Fleming more closely. And then I just uh, I was just massively entertained by his books there. They're much more, I think, interesting than people give him credit for. And they're also, for me anyway, a kind of uh, filter into lots of other things. I mean, they were obviously hugely influential on Cold War uh, politics and and on fiction, but also on fashion, on design, on, you know, advertising. And there's all sorts of other fields that that they had an impact on. So, um, you know, for that reason, I I have quite quite a strong interest in it. Yeah. And and what do you think of the, just a very sort of just a very general question, what do you think of the films versus the books? Well, I think um, a lot of people tend to say nowadays that, oh, you know, the the, the films are very silly compared to the books and the books are much more serious. Um, I don't think that's necessarily true. I think there are some aspects of the novels that are, that are more serious and indeed the short stories are more, tend to be more, tend to be grittier, but there's plenty of uh, silly stuff in, in Fleming and um, plenty of megalomaniacs. And I mean, Dr. No, for example, the novel is incredibly pulpish as is um, live and let die. But, um, but yeah, I mean, it, it's true that they tend to be a little bit more uh, grounded, a little bit more down to earth. Uh, obviously, you don't have so many car chases and explosions and, and all that kind of stuff. The the films have kind of um, extrapolated from Fleming and, and made them bigger and bigger and bigger um, until you get, you know, sort of massive kind of spectacular uh, festival of, of, of explosions and gadgets and all that kind of kind of stuff but a lot of the, the the dna is still from from the books and i think daniel craig uh really captures a lot of um what Fleming envisioned in the character of james bond he he feels very much like he's from he's the bond of the books yeah and very much i think the unsung hero of james bond timothy dalton as well absolutely yeah i mean timothy dalton um, in a way, did what Craig is doing now, you know, well in advance, but perhaps perhaps too far in advance. People weren't quite ready for that after after the Roger Moore era. But yeah, I mean, absolutely. If you if you watch the Living Daylights and then read uh, the short story by Fleming, the Living Daylights, which is this, you know, really almost kind of Le Carre esque uh, spy story uh, set in Berlin, uh, you really see that Dalton. I mean, that that is the character Dalton is playing. It's very very closely. Uh, uh, hewing to what Fleming was was imagining. 
Yeah, yeah, because he was kind of close to resigning, wasn't he? And a bit sort of tired of his job. And it was, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I've just been yeah. rewatching Licence to Kill. And I was really, there's something about that film I really like. Um, and yeah, it's a very interesting film. It got a lot of flack. And I think, yeah, people people had become used to the great spectacles and, you know, enormous stunts and explosions and all that kind of thing. And, and the kind of glamour and everything like that. And that was lacking, That those elements were lacking in Dalton's films. But other elements, I think, were, I mean, the kind of, um, the seriousness and the 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 ethical framework, if you like. People, people tend to think that Bond, a lot of people, I think, tend to think that Bond is this sort of complete cad. Um, but actually, he's he's quite moralistic uh, in some ways. And he, you know, he... He values uh, duty, and he he has some scruples, and he's a bit of a romantic at heart, actually, in the in the Fleming novels, and all of that stuff. I think um, Dalton and also Craig uh, have really uh, focused on much more. Mm-hmm. And it's, I think that's probably what leads to his continuing appeal as a character. I mean, there are questionable things in in both the books and the and the films. Um, but yeah. uh, but those sort of core values seem to keep drawing us back, don't they? They give us this sort of sense of of justice, you know, this guy out there sort of sorting out the the powerful bad guys. Yeah, it's very much um, an archetype. I mean, he's a he's a Robin Hood mm. figure, if you like, and um, you know the Scarlet Pimpernel um, and all of these kind of figures that you that you had from literature beforehand. Um, you know, paved the way for for this character. There were many other characters. Uh, along these lines before Fleming came along but this this was a modern iteration of it and and one that um fitted the cold war so perfectly uh, and then took off that it's now become you know an icon an icon in its own right and i think one of the things also that attracted me to fleming was i think he hasn't been taken very seriously because i think particularly in in britain there's a there's a weird idea that if something isn't serious then you shouldn't take it seriously. And I think that's a bit of a conflation. Things can be fun, um, but they can still have an impact. They're still worth investigating. And I think, you know, Fleming really created an icon, you know, along the lines of, you know, uh, Robin Hood or or, or Sherlock Holmes. Um, and so he, you know, the Beatles, the Stones, James Bond, I mean, these, these things are massive British icons that had a huge impact on 20th century history and continue to do so. And so I think just from that perspective, um, he's very much worth, uh, you know, looking at. Mm. I mean, it, it's probably a bit unfair to ask you, especially as I haven't <laughs> warned you. Um, do you have any particular, is there a particular favourite Bond book or film that, that you keep kind of coming back to? There's a couple. It's, it's always difficult to, to narrow these down, but um, I, I really uh, like Casino Royale, uh, both the novel and uh, Fleming's, uh, sorry, and Craig's uh, um, portrayal of him in the in the film. Um, but the novel particularly is um, a, a very weird. It was the first novel. And that one, I think there is a very strong case. I mean, that, that is very dark. Um, it's, a, it's a short novel. It's almost a novella length, really, by today's standards. And it doesn't have, uh, you know, it's sort of set in mainly in, in one location in northern France. Um, but it's a very brutal, um, ruthless, uh, taut spy thriller um and the the character bond is quite surprising if you if you're used to for example lots of roger moore films and you read that you would probably be, be quite shocked by by that um but then i think they did a very very good adaptation with with daniel craig and i think there's a lot of the the elements in that novel 
they managed to successfully uh, create uh, and transform into film. Yeah, it's difficult to actually make a film around a card game because not a lot of yeah. people are going to understand what's going on. I mean, you know, success is always is always twenty twenty, and and before they made that film with Daniel Craig, I mean, of course, there was first of all a lot of criticism of the casting of Daniel Craig. That was his first film, and people couldn't imagine how um, that guy, that actor, would would be the Bond that they had imagined. Um, and then also. The the only uh, version that most people knew of Casino Royale at that point was the uh, spoof version from the 60s, which I think, being generous, was quite a messy film. And, yeah, I think and, the behind-the-scenes stories are more interesting than the actual movie. <laughs> absolutely. And and so a lot of – but a lot of people, you know, the, the that film, first of all, that novel rather, it's, um, you know, as you say, it's got a card game, takes up a lot of the action. Um, it's got a very grim torture sequence that um, involves Bond's private parts. Um, you know, how on earth are they going to film this uh, and make it acceptable? You know, it's got a very famous uh, last line where he says, the bitch is dead. How, you know, a lot of people thought there's no way you could make a modern uh, Bond film out of this book and now you know they did it and it was a huge commercial and critical triumph and people have forgotten that but there was a lot of skepticism that that could actually be made and they did an amazing an amazing job i think of of actually deepening the character whilst keeping all of the things that people liked about the bond films but they they get somehow bond became a more three-dimensional hmm. uh figure in that film yeah i, I still think personally think it's daniel craig's best one um all the others are okay in comparison but i still think there's just something about that story um yeah it just hit so many beats well that it was very hard to sort of top and i don't think they ever quite have there's like the next film was a bit too self-conscious and then the other ones yeah. are a bit too trying to be a bond film <laughs> and go back to the things they were trying to move away from yeah part of it could be that you know it really helped that they had the source material so mm. um they even if it's a short um a short novel there there's a lot of fleming in the in that film so you know that helps mm -hmm. yeah well let's let's move on to the man himself so um fleming's sort of history can you just tell us a little bit about in fleming's sort of early years yeah i mean he came from um a wealthy background uh his grandfather robert fleming um, was a merchant banker, and his father was a conservative member of parliament. Um, he was one of four brothers. Um, there's a lot of military service uh, in his family. Um, his uh, younger brother, Michael, died in the Second World War, um, and his uh, elder brother, Peter, was uh, also active in the Second World War, as was Ian himself. Uh, Peter was slightly slightly overshadowed Ian Fleming for most of his life, um, Peter Fleming was this incredibly charming, witty um, uh, man who really almost nobody, I don't think anybody had a bad word to say about Peter Fleming. Um, everyone seemed to have liked Peter Fleming uh, who came across him. He was, um, first of all, an explorer, and then he was a travel writer. And he was a very famous travel writer. He was one of the best-known writers uh, in Britain, and you know, as the James Bond thing has become, um, you know, a sort of global phenomenon, people have forgotten that. But um, Peter Ian was the sort of younger brother of Peter Fleming, and in fact, not a lot of people know this, but when Ian Fleming submitted Casino Royale, his first novel, to the publisher Jonathan Cape, uh, Jonathan Cape, uh, who owned, you know, the head of the publishing company, um, initially rejected the novel. 
And the reason why he eventually accepted it was essentially um, as a kind of favor because they also published Peter Fleming. And it's like, well, we've got this thriller by by Peter Fleming's younger brother, so I suppose we will take it on. And that was a, that was a sort of ma- major contributing factor to to Ian Fleming being published. Um, so he lived a little bit, I think, uh, in the shadow. Uh, of Peter Fleming particularly, um, but also he was a little bit the black sheep of the family. Uh, he was a little bit, he didn't quite know what to do. Um, he was a bit of a playboy, as one might expect from reading his novels. Um, and he he sort of drifted between a few different careers. He was a, a stockbroker for a time and he was a journalist for a time. And it wasn't quite clear what he was going to do with his life. And really, the Second World War made made Ian Fleming. Yeah, and am I right in remembering his father died in World War One, and there was a yeah. connection to Winston Churchill that sort of because I, I think from memory, yeah. um, Ian Fleming was very much an admirer of Churchill. Yeah, Churchill wrote um, the obituary of his of his father in the Times. And uh, if I remember it correctly, Ian Fleming uh, always kept that. I mean, that was I think above his desk. Um, so yeah, he was. Um, yeah, he had quite a lot to live up to, I think. You know, he he his family had achieved a lot um and he was a little bit the layabout. So he was sent off to, you know, study German and French and he, there was various things he tried and he, I think his family were sort of slightly despairing of him. Um if you if you read the um there's two excellent biographies by uh, one by John Pearson and one by Andrew Lysett uh, that go into a lot of detail about this, but yeah, I think um he was sort of looking for um he, he wasn't as disciplined as the rest of the people you know the men the men in his family and he was looking for something that would kind of give him direction in his life when the war came along yeah yeah and uh yeah, yeah with world war Two, he was sort of 31 years of age and he was recruited mm-hmm. into naval intelligence and became the personal assistant to rear admiral john godfrey who was then the head of british naval intelligence what is what is known about ian fleming's sort of naval intelligence career so uh, quite a lot has been written about that and uh, more and more has been declassified about uh, British naval intelligence in the last few years. And Fleming, um, Ian Fleming, was not, uh, you know, behind enemy lines or, or anything like that. He wasn't a field agent. Um, uh, Peter Fleming, his brother, was really a, um, a kind of special forces guy. He was a commando. He was directly uh, involved in the fighting and all that kind of stuff. Um Ian Fleming was um, the kind of PA, if you like, to John Godfrey. Um, in the novels, there's a character called Bill Tanner, who's the chief of staff to M. And that's that's really what Ian Fleming's role was. He was a kind of right-hand man of Admiral Godfrey. And he was incredibly influential in that role. Uh, it was an incredibly important role. And he was... Um, the sort of um, ideas man for Godfrey and he kind of represented Godfrey in Whitehall um, and his his forte it, it, it became apparent quite early on was um, coming up with ingenious ideas um, obviously we now know him for that from his fiction but before he was writing his fiction you know 15 years before that he was coming up with all kinds of creative ways to try to defeat the Germans so that was that was the main thing that he was that he was that he was doing. 
And um, yeah, am I right in remembering he was involved in the? Um, there's a plot um, where they. Uh, oh God, I think they call it. Is it the man who? The man who never was. Oh yeah, tangentially he he was. Yeah. So Godfrey was a sort of classic, you know, rear admiral type. Um, M is we think partially based on him, and there is a a memo that was sent around Whitehall in 1939, uh, known as the Trout Memo, which is signed by Godfrey, but. Um, looks very much like it was probably, you know, thought up and, and written by by Fleming, and he, you know, and he then put it in front of Godfrey, who agreed and signed it. Um, and this was discussed in some detail at the beginning of Ben McIntyre's book about Operation Mincemeat, uh, the man who never was. And one of the suggestions there was to to do something that, that happened in Operation Mincemeat, which was, you know, when they they kind of, you know, it was a, it was a deception operation where they they faked. Uh, they 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 took a soldier and, and a corpse and they they pretended that you know um, this was a um, a British you know an accident that had happened and he, he washes ashore and he has all sorts of papers uh, on him and the Germans would sort of you know read these and believe that they must be true um, and there's something slightly similar in the Trout memo however there were other yeah, I mean it, this might not be the the actual origin of that operation but but Fleming was a specialist in coming up with this I mean a, a year after that he uh, came up with an operation that he codenamed Ruthless which was slightly similar where he had suggested that they stage um, a fake plane crash in the channel uh, using a German uh, bomber and um, stuffed with uh, British soldiers, uh, a tough crew of five, he, he called them, in, uh, wearing German uniforms, and that they would then be picked up uh, by German U-boats, you know, trying to help out their comrades. And that they, as soon as they get onto onto the U-boat, they would storm it and steal the Enigma code books. So it's a little bit of a similar uh, deception idea to to mincemeat. So he came up with, and that didn't happen in the end. Quite a lot of the uh, plans he came up with didn't actually happen. He had another one where there would be someone who would be kind of stationed on a on an island. Um, um, in the North Sea, I think it was, uh, who would kind of listen to lots of uh, listen to lots of stuff going on, but a lot of them were deemed too risky or or too bizarre or you know too difficult, too impractical to carry out. Um, but quite a few of his ideas sort of seeped into the into the thinking, and probably probably his greatest contribution, his, the idea that he really had, was actually taken from the Germans, which was uh, Otto Skorzeny, the German commando, uh, was specializing in this kind of thing where you would, you would, he would put German commandos in American uniforms and uh, send them scurrying off to do all sorts of things. And Fleming came up with an idea um, which was eventually formed called 30 Assault Unit, which was a commando, a British commando unit, which would go behind enemy lines and um, in advance of the the troops, and would sort of scavenge uh, all kinds of material, code books, and and um, you know weapons, and 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 any documents that they could find, and and all that kind of thing. So he he had quite, I would say, quite a um, quite a large influence for someone uh, in the position that he was in. Yeah, and am I right remembering there's something called Operation Goldeneye, which obviously inspired the name of his house, and and in the subsequent movie, uh, Goldeneye was. Um, not really an operation it was more um a station um so in the in the bond novels um fleming sort of created this way of of talking about things so that um the mi6 uh headquarters in tokyo for example is known as station j uh 
J for Japan. And in a way, Operation GoldenEye was um, really um, the station in Gibraltar. So it was a it was a small group of people who would um, monitor what was going on, going on in the straits around Gibraltar and um, protect Gibraltar. There was a stay behind uh, cave and a, and a network there, and and Fleming was responsible for for coming up with that uh, idea and and uh, monitoring you know how they how they carried it out effectively. Mm. And um, so do we know, with, with regards to, we just mentioned Jamaica just now, so Ian Fleming obviously spent his last part of his life, uh, at least last, uh, half of his year, I think, at least in Jamaica. What was it that drew Fleming to Jamaica? Is there a kind of war connection to that, or was it just a, a nice spot that he, he liked? He had, he had visited Jamaica during the war, um, and although it wasn't particularly a successful trip, um, he seems to have fallen in love with it. Um, I think... You know, there are many elements, um, you know, the sun was shining, um, there's a sea, and I, he was a great lover of nature. I mean, you can tell, you know, if you think of the of the Bond novels with, you know, the or even the Bond films with, um, you know, there's lots of exotic fish and animals and, and you know, all, all sorts of, you know, there's obviously Octopussy, the original short story is named after an octopus. Fleming loved to dive, he loved to swim. Um, he was fascinated by uh, f- uh, flowers. Um the name James Bond comes from uh, a book by an American ornithologist called James Bond about birds of the West Indies. So he was very, very interested in in, uh, in nature. And I think the main thing was that the atmosphere was just very relaxed and a million miles away from from you know the fog and the rain and the cold of, of London, where he where he worked for the rest of the time. So it was a it was a haven uh, for him where he could just you know chill if you like to 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 use a more 21st century yeah, term we'd all love it and who can blame yeah can blame yeah who wouldn't want a little uh, place in jamaica to go to once <laughs> like what we're doing connect with us on twitter at dry cleaner cast support the show by becoming a dry cleaner cast patreon subscriber today go to patreon.com slash dry cleaner cast that's patreon.com slash drycleanercast. So at the age of 45, Ian Fleming sat down at his, uh, apparently his famous golden typewriter, um, and he created the uh, fictional British secret agent James Bond. And um, his novels have obviously inspired the one of the longest film franchises of all time. And as we're getting to sort of behind these adventures of James Bond, there's some real life moments from Ian Fleming's own history. So, um, Jeremy, can you just talk us through some of these real life moments that have influenced Ian Fleming? The most famous one is probably the one that started it all off, which is um, Casino Royale. So we met, you mentioned the card game. It's a, it's a game of Baccarat. And this was inspired by a trip uh, Fleming took to Portugal in during the Second World War in 1941 uh, with Godfrey. And they were on their way to the United States um, to kind of firm up uh, naval intelligence's relationship with the States. But they they staged uh, in Portugal and they also met some people there. But while they were there, they went to the casino in Estoril. And uh, Fleming loved gambling he was always fascinated by gambling um he'd been he'd been a a gambler since he was very young and he saw some german agents in in the casino 
and he had this idea that he would bet against the German agents, and by winning, he would help the Allied war effort. Uh, that was that was his idea. Good now excuse. He, yeah, it's a good <laughs> excuse. And he and he lost uh, quite spectacularly. Um, but that uh, moment of being in a casino, and I, I guess the the combination of the casino and the danger and the suspense and everything, um, you know, planted something in his brain. There's also um, there was a, a guy called Ralph Izard who was in naval intelligence who apparently had quite a similar experience um, and he had sent a report back to naval intelligence about this that Fleming had seen according to John Pearson in his biography Fleming then immediately took Izard you know out for a meal and you know probed him on all the details and what everyone was wearing and how exactly the hand had gone but so that was the the origin um of casino royale of the the, the sort of main uh, the main plot um of, of casino hmm. royale quick question actually do we know if the casino in portugal still exists it does yeah i've been there yeah Have you? oh my god see I, I was just reading about this because i was thinking this would be a great holiday idea my, yeah, my wife yeah. won't be too thrilled by this idea <laughs> i mean there's a whole there's a whole school you know there's a whole lot of people who 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 you know write articles and 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 books about you know the locations in in you know the Bond novels and, and films. So yeah, Estoril is uh, is is a stop on the on the map. Absolutely. Oh, well, I have a feeling it'll be a future stop of mine. <laughs> That's probably the most famous. I'm just thinking is the other real life moments. Um, so there was another one which, well, uh, didn't influence Fleming, but influenced. Um, James James Bond films the the James Bond film Goldfinger I don't know if you remember um, starts with this uh, scene with a I think it's meant to be a, either a seagull or a duck uh, on a kind of black oily uh, water uh, harbour at night and then um, as it kind of zooms in uh, you you know it, a face emerges from underneath the bird and you realise it's actually Sean Connery. And then he steps ashore and he unzips his uh, wetsuit and he's got a tux underneath. And that comes from a real operation that took place in 1941 that MI6 carried out uh, in Holland. And I did some research on that quite a while, quite a while ago now. And it's not entirely clear to me how... Uh, how exactly that got into that film. But I think that the most likely explanation is... Um, that Paul Dane uh, was one of the writers of that film, and uh, Dane had been very heavily involved in British intelligence during the Second World War, and was an instructor for the Special Operations Executive. And I think that through the grapevine of British intelligence, he had probably heard. I mean, it's such a bizarre—it's a bizarre idea. It's a very, very strange thing to want to do, and it's, it was a sort of celebrated operation within intelligence circles in the uk so i think that scene is a kind of tribute to uh that operation yeah yeah and it's and so this is this is a scene that's exclusive to the movies but not in the books i must have I haven't yeah. read the book goldfinger to my shame but i uh, know yeah, it's not it's not it's not in the book no um and it so it was added and i think i think it was added by um well the scene as a whole was not added by Paul Dane, but I think that part of the scene was added. And in fact, in his original drafts, it was quite a lot grimmer. It was not a, a, a bird. It was the carcass of a dead dog who Bond is hiding under, which is, gives you an idea of something a little bit more like real espionage. If you're a real secret agent, that might be the kind of thing that you might be forced uh, to do. Uh, it might not be quite as glamorous as the depiction um, 
in the in the film and in fact the operation was not very glamorous um at all um it was an operation to try to get in touch with uh, dutch resistance and a lot of them had been betrayed so um it was an incredibly daring operation um but it wasn't uh, a successful one no and um so other things that crop up in fleming's novels things like smirsh which was am i right in believing it was inspired by something that has some roots in reality yeah smirsh was real smirsh was a real um organization it was a a part of uh, soviet intelligence uh, in fact counterintelligence and fleming had probably read about that the first real stuff about that in the west came out in i think 1951 there was a book by a couple of americans um and that was widely widely reviewed and um it had this um aspect to it where it said that it was a contraction of death to spies in russian um which fleming used and which of course is you know fantastically gruesome and sinister and very very thrillery and fleming seized on it but in in his books, they are a very very different um, type of beast than they are than they were in reality. They were pretty awful in reality. They were, but what they were really concerned with was treachery to the Soviet Union. They were a department that um, uh, found people who had betrayed in some way the Soviet Union, uh, tracked them down, uh, interrogated them, um, and sort of handed them over normally to a gulag. So. Straight after the Second World War, for example, Smirsch agents were um, going around Germany and Austria and elsewhere into displaced persons camps and finding um, any Soviet citizens who um, either had collaborated with the Nazis directly or in some way had shown any kind of hostility or resistance towards the Soviets during the war. And they would interrogate them. And as I say, if, if they were found guilty, which I think they normally were, you know, that would be, you know, they would be shipped off and that would be the end of them. So that that's a pretty sinister uh, group, but in Fleming's hands, it became a sort of global group. And I think what Fleming was really looking for was um, a secret society, because Fleming Fleming was a huge fan of thrillers. He'd grown up reading thrillers. He grew up reading, you know, Sax Romer's Fu Manchu and and Bulldog Drummond and all of these things. And in most of those early British thrillers, you have a secret society. So. Um, in the 39 steps by John Buchan, for example, there's a, there's a group of German spies who are called the Blackstone, but often they're not, um, necessarily linked so, so easily to one country in, uh, the Fu Manchu novels. Fu Manchu is, uh, the head of a society called the Sea Fan. Um, in the Dennis Wheatley novels of the forties, you have the gang of seven where you have, you know, there's a sort of Japanese guy, a German guy, you know. Uh, different uh, financiers and all these kind of things. So I think Fleming was looking for a kind of all-encompassing, uh, massive conspiracy, if you like, um, that would provide a suitable villain, uh, an, an opponent for Bond to go up against in several books. And for his first few, that was Smirsch. And then he changed it to Spectre, um, I think because, uh, in his view, the Cold War... It was a little bit counterproductive, you know, and it was a little bit cliched as well to constantly be blaming the Russians for everything. And some of the books with Smirsch in, it's very tenuous. I mean, Le Chiffre owes money to Smirsch in Casino Royale. In Goldfinger, Goldfinger is the treasurer of Smirsch um, in Live and Let Die. I mean, Mr. Big is a, you know, Caribbean um, voodoo 
uh, fake voodoo god who's mm. also a, a New York gangster who's somehow working for Smirsh. So it didn't quite make sense. So so he changed it. Yeah, that makes <laughs> it makes sense. Yeah, with Spectre, because yeah, as you're saying, um, otherwise it does become a bit predictable. It's always the Russians, and um, yeah, and I think that's one of the challenges of spy fiction actually, because it can. If you're not careful, it can come across as being a bit racist, can't it? Because you're just constantly targeting a particular country. Yeah. And, um... I mean, yes. <laughs> I think, actually, I'm not sure. I mean, there are things in the Fleming novels which um, are pretty much along those lines. I think some of the comments uh, about, you know, Koreans and Goldfinger, for example. And But I, I, I'm not sure Fleming would have would have used the word racist. But, yes, I think that was his concern that, you know, I'm just constantly, you know, the the Russians are the baddies the whole time. So I need to figure out a way of making it something something else. So let's just have, um, I mean, Spectre is a group um, that isn't ideologically uh, allied to uh, any one country. It's in it for for themselves. They just will, you know, um, blackmail or extort anyone, uh, whoever the highest bidder is. And they're made up of people from, they, they are made up of some people from Smirsh um, and from other, you know, uh, organizations, you know, criminal organizations around the world. So that way he had something that um, he could really use uh, wherever uh, James Bond was. Uh, it was it would be plausible that Spectre might have a, an interest. Whereas for for the Russians to be interested, I mean, it's even from the beginning, it's a very very weird idea that um, you know Soviet intelligence is so fascinated by you know one guy who owns some brothels in northern France um, that they're going to send you know an agent to kill him. It's not particularly. Plausible. Having, having said that, we're talking about Ian Fleming here. So, I mean, he he wasn't always uh, interested, let's say, in the most plausible um, espionage plot. Um, but in that way, I think he did he did make it a little bit more plausible. Smirsch also was not existing by the time he he started writing about them. Uh, Smirsch closed down uh, in the forties. So even by Casino Royale, Smirsch, uh, where he introduced Merchant Fiction, it, it wasn't ever, it wasn't uh, a real organization anymore. And I can assume a lot of members of the general public probably weren't aware of that, were they? No, it was a pretty obscure thing. And in a way, he was doing – it was already a, a way to do what he did with Spectre, which was instead of just having the KGB or the NKVD or the MGB, as they were also called, he had a, a slightly more obscure organization within Soviet intelligence that most people wouldn't have heard of. So he'd already made it a little bit more interesting. Mm. And I think that that's what Fleming really – that's what makes the books so brilliant is that – um, he had a great eye for interesting information, and he 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 could take fairly hackneyed plots, um, ideas that had been done a million times before in, in thrillers, and he would just find a new uh, piece of information or a new spin on them that would um, just sort of kick it into another gear. So rather than just having the same old thing, suddenly you have this um, fantastically sinister-sounding smirch. So that's that's I think what his great talent was, and. It's almost in every paragraph of one of his books you, you find stuff that, that is like that. It's like, oh, I didn't know that. Mm. Yeah, it's, it's good fun for Googling, isn't it? <laughs> As you're reading. Yeah. You know? yeah. Um, yeah, and I love um, with Bond his sort of obscure knowledge about things, um, like particular um, vintages of alcohol and stuff like that. <laughs> yeah, it's slightly less of that in the books. But I think, yeah, to a large degree, that was that was why Fleming was successful, was because, of course... People couldn't Google stuff in those days. So he was really uh, introducing um, 
you know, a lot of uh, information, you know, new information to people that they didn't know and they didn't have access to. So it was a kind of, um, it was an insider uh, feel to what he, you know, this is how, this is what it's really like. This is what Jamaica is actually like. Most people had never visited Jamaica. You know, this is what it's, it's really like in a, in a, a bar in Paris. Um, and these are the real, it's a bit like a sort of travel guide where, you know, it says, you know, these are the, the places to go that are off, off the beaten path that the tourists don't normally go to. That's kind of the appeal of the Fleming novels where he would recommend and, and discuss things that were a little bit of a connoisseur's, uh, you know, information um, that that you wouldn't normally be able to get access to. Yeah. Now, is there is there a definitive answer to who the inspiration of the character of James Bond himself is? No, not really. I th- I mean, I think about as definitive as you can get is the main inspiration is is himself. Yeah. Uh, he's a fantasy figure of of Ian Fleming himself. Um, as I said before, Fleming wasn't um, a field agent. He wasn't um, in the Second World War or afterwards working behind enemy lines. Um, and indeed, uh, he was forbidden to do so because it was felt that he knew too much and that if he'd been captured by the Germans, he would have given away far too much information. But he knew a lot of people who were. He knew a lot of uh, commandos, of course, uh, his brother and, and other people. And so it's kind of uh, a fantasy of had he been a man of action, this is what he would have liked to have, have been like. Um, James Bond's tastes are quite, you know, by and large, the same as Fleming's. He dresses, he has the same taste in clothes as Fleming. He has the same taste in, in drinks and, and, and women, you know, that these are all Fleming's own tastes. Um, in terms of the secret agent side of him, I think he was very influenced by, um, commandos he'd known, um, people who were in 30 assault unit, people like Ralph Izzard, people like Patrick Dieldrob. And I think also, I mean, a major, major influence was his brother, Peter. Um, Peter, as I said before, his, his, um, reputation isn't as, you know, he's not as well known now, of course, as, as Ian, but, um, he had an amazing life. There's a fantastic biography of him that was written in the seventies by Duff Hart Davis. And, I mean, he's just a, a completely amazing. He had a, he really had an amazing war, and he was involved. You know, he was he was um, with the commando mission in Greece. Uh, he was reported uh, dead in uh, Norway, um, and he he was a real. That guy was a real James Bond, with the exception that um, he wasn't a womanizer or anything like that. He didn't have that kind of um, uh, the the black sheep thing that that Ian had. But in terms of the the action that he that he faced, he was uh, heavily involved in um, deception operations in the Far East. So I think a lot of um, a lot of the action side of Bond comes from Peter Fleming. Yeah, yeah, excellent. Yeah, I suppose he would have he would have heard all the stories when they have uh, caught up. I suppose. Yeah, absolutely. And. Um, do we know? Sorry, it's a bit of a random question now, but and a, a, probably a bit of a populist question. But do we know the actual origins of the vodka martini shake and not stirred? Because I I'm under the impression it came from Bill Donovan in the states. But I could be completely wrong on that one. Oh, that could be. I feel like I'm I'm in the last seconds of a mastermind round here. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm not sure. I think. I mean, one of the things is with something as big as Bond. And, and Fleming is there's a lot of um, Chinese whispers and there's a lot of, you know, urban myths, if you like, um, and a lot of stories 
get told lots of different ways. So, I mean, the, the code name 007, there's about five competing stories about where he got that from. Um, the Vesper, I can't, um, I'm struggling to remember where exactly that, that comes from. But, um, I mean, it might just have been as simple as that. Um, he, you know, he came up with the, the character's name and then thought that that would be, that would be good and uh, a good name, you know, a good way for Bond to pay tribute to and, and thought of a, um, you know, thought of a drink that would suit, but I've no doubt that the the sort of inside bit of information that he's that he's giving the connoisseur's uh, bit, which is the shaken not stirred, um, whether or not that is um, true or not, that it's better to have your vodka martini shaken rather than stirred, which I, I'm sure there's a lot of debate about. But that detail that he's put in is is part of this thing that he's not just ordering a vodka martini; uh, he's going to tell you, um, you know, the real way to get it right. Um, and that's the kind of the kind of thing that you're you're going to want to read his novels for. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And uh, and that drink has uh, yeah, gone on ever since. <laughs> yeah, have you ever had one? I have I've had a few actually. I actually I prefer <laughs> I've my my personal uh, pref- uh, preference is actually a Bombay Sapphire Martini. Um, okay. so I go with gin rather than vodka, but I do like vodka martinis. But I, for some for some reason, I prefer, um, find the gin one a bit more satisfying, and um, and I kind of call it my uh, holiday drink because I only seem to drink it when I'm on holidays. <laughs> okay, that sounds very James Bond. It does. <laughs> <laughs> my holiday drink. <laughs> I just go to the bar and order my holiday drink. <laughs> I can't see it. I can't see Daniel Craig saying that. <laughs> no, exactly. <laughs> How about you? <laughs> I don't. I don't really drink. Uh, I'm more of a wine, a wine person. So I don't. I don't really drink uh, hard liquor. Sorry, very boring of me. No, that's all right. Have you? So you've never had one, or you? you just I think I have. I have. I have had one, but it yeah. didn't really do anything for me. No, fair enough. It is a bit like rocket fuel. I remember it was. Yeah. Yeah, exactly like that. Yeah. Yeah, because I think I think my first one actually was in 2007. Um, and it was with my friend Nejad and um, and uh, we both had one and he he hated it. <laughs> so I ended up drinking his as well. He absolutely hated it and I didn't mind it. But uh, yeah, it's quite a it is quite a powerful drink. Um, and I, I always think also that bar barmen or you know people working behind bars must be so bored. Yeah, I know. People coming up and saying, "Can I have a can I have a vodka martini? You know, shaken not stirred or, or whatever they do." But well, you know, I, I let them decide that. But I was a bit embarrassed. Uh, as I, I when I went up to the bar, I, was, I didn't do the defiant sort of like a vodka martini shaken not stirred. It was more like a like a vodka martini and then left there yeah. to work out yeah. and ask, well, you you see, like that's that? very British and that, that's yeah. something Bond is very British but that's one thing that he doesn't have which is that uh, sort of sense of uh, reticence and shame uh, that most British people have but he's not Bond is not apologising the entire time uh, whereas most uh, Brits uh, tend to do that um, so perhaps that's a bit unrealistic in, in Fleming's work. It's true. It's true. Um, uh, vodka martinis aside, are there any other stories that um, we haven't touched upon that you uh, find interesting about some of uh, Ian Fleming? Well, I think, um, I mean, as he went on, I think he, 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 he became a more interesting writer. Uh, he became more interested in the real workings of the Cold War and I think, I mean, you asked me earlier what my favourite of the novels are, and I said Casino Royale, but I would also highlight From Russia With Love, which I think is a really fantastic thriller, um, pretty straightforward, and it, it's not an outlandish one. Uh, it's more like a, an Eric Ambler thriller, um, fantastic evocation of Istanbul. And for that book, there's a lot of real espionage stuff in there. There's a lot of um, things that he had 
got access to. So there was a a Russian defector, uh, Grigory Tokayev, who was uh, he was an aeronautical engineer uh, with the Soviet Air Force, and he defected uh, to the British sector of Berlin in 1947. He was one of the big big defectors, and um, Fleming was put discreetly in touch with him, and quite a lot of the stuff about Soviet intelligence comes from that defector, and there's lots of references to real life. Uh, operations and real-life espionage, uh, the Berlin Tunnel, and lots of other things in that book. So I think that's that's quite interesting. And then I think the other thing that, that I'm most interested in his writing, uh, or my, my personal preference, is actually for the short stories. So I think um, he really matured as a writer when he was doing the short stories. Uh, a lot of people don't like them because they're nothing like the films, mostly. Um, but I think that... Um, the Living Daylights uh, is a really brilliant short story um, and would surprise a lot of people. If you if you think Fleming's not for you, just try reading that short story um, and see what you think. And then I think also Octopussy, which um, is a very weird story and um, came out after he died, but is a kind of um, self-portrait and a very cutting self-portrait of a British guy um, living in the Caribbean off ill-gotten goods um, and Bond comes and visits him and reminds him of something he he did that was wrong in the war and it, it sort of reads a bit like a suicide note in a way it's a very very depressive story but it's a brilliantly written story in the vein of Somerset Maugham's uh, short stories so I think uh, a lot of people have a kind of um, a bl- bit of a black and white view of of Fleming um, but I think that there's there's quite a surprising range across his work of of different types of story yeah no he is a very interesting read and um yeah i've always been a big fan i I, you know on her majesty's secret service is such an interesting one both both the the film is a yeah the film is i like the film a lot it's all grown up i'm still not sure about george lazenby but um but the novel and the film are quite close and um it's a really interesting story i like that one yeah and i think i mean obviously the i'm i don't think i can I need to be in too fearful of spoiler alerts, but obviously the the ending of that um, is um, quite unusual, uh, if you like, in that that goes against what we know, you know, what we think of uh, about James Bond. I mean, he gets married, you know, there's a real love story there. Um, so I think he was always he he got bored very quickly. He was a very restless man, and I think he was um, always trying to push what he was doing. He started writing late. Um, he died early, but he was always trying to push um, with each book into doing something completely different. The end of From Russia with Love. You think James Bond is dead? Um, he took a lot of risks, and um, a lot of the things that he did we now take for granted because um, you know so many others have followed in his footsteps that we, we just forget that actually, you know, Fleming was the, the person who, who really uh, set the British spy novel alight. Yeah, definitely. There's actually a very interesting book, isn't there, about um, Ian Fleming and the kind of the post-war years. I can't remember the name of it now. Um, is it? No, what is it? Is it not Royal Britannia? It's something about Ian Fleming and, and the uh, the sort of 50s and, and how he inspired people to kind of pick themselves up a bit, but I can't remember the name of the book now. Um, oh, right. Are you thinking perhaps of Simon Winder's book? It could be. Yeah. Um, 
Yeah. yeah. I mean, yeah. There's, there's been so, so much uh, <laughs> written about, about Fleming. But that's another thing I, I find mm. interesting is that I, I, I kind of presumed when I became, when I started to become very interested, you know, wow, there are all these, you know, coffee table books and documentaries and so many, you know, so much about, about Fleming that there, there can't be anything left to find out. But actually, there's there's quite a few things that have not been looked at, um, and there's always more. You know, there's always something else that you can that you can explore. Yeah, yeah, and that makes it such an interesting sort of figure. I've actually just purchased um, uh, one of the biographies about him just because I was thinking of something to read over my uh, upcoming holiday. Uh, which one? Which one have you got? It's I'll go onto my Kindle and tell you. Two seconds. Um, <laughs> I was reading the uh, Amazon reviews, and one one got slated, and I thought, oh, okay. Um, so this one's the John Pearson Life of Ian yeah, Fleming. That's that's very good. That that was written. Um, it, they started writing it while he was alive. Actually, Leonard Russell, who was the features editor at the Sunday Times, yeah. started writing it, and then he handed over to Pearson. And it was the first major biography. It came out, I think, in 66. And it holds up very, very well. It's a very good book. Excellent. Have you ever seen any of the, the biographical films? Uh, not Most of them are not very good, but there's a few of them. Um, um, ages ago, I think I saw one with uh, Charles Dance. That's but, it, which no, is GoldenEye, yeah. that one, yeah. Yeah, but no. And I, I did also see most of, there was a TV series a few years ago. There was, uh, Fleming. Fleming, yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah the I, saw, I, saw mo- I saw most of that. But I mean, that, I mean, that was great fun. But yeah. I mean, it was, you know, quite a long way away from what actually happened, I think. Yeah, because it's, it's a bit, that's the thing, like, it's, it's, they always seem to, um, I don't know. I suppose they were trying to take it in that sort of very popular James Bond route, but there's some tragic moments, like when um, there was a woman he was dating who was killed yeah. in an airstrike, and um, yeah. and I would love to have known a bit more about that and how it actually affected him. They kind of just—it's a strange moment in the the Fleming film. Um, well, film Chris, you are reading the right book on your Kindle. Oh, because, good. <laughs> um, if I'm not mistaken, that was their source uh, material. Mm. Uh, for that series and uh, i'm pretty sure pearson um, talks about uh, that incident uh, yeah. in, in quite some detail yeah because i because i wondered if um because bond is quite a tragic figure isn't he with his his romances mm. um and i just wondered whether there was something connected to the death of that woman he was involved with in world war Two. Uh, yes, I yeah. think uh, absolutely um, there was, and I think this is the thing: is that people, you know, it, it's there's a lot more to it. There, there is. I mean, Fleming, um, you know, died pretty young, and his his attitude. He was, you know, he was smoking far too much, and he was drinking far too much, and his doctors warned him about this. Um, and his attitude was, you know, to hell with that. Um, and he gave um, Bond uh, this. Um, uh, motto, which is, I will not waste my days in trying to prolong them. And that is really uh, his own attitude towards life. So there was a, and uh, often in the books, he, there's a kind, there's this word that he continually uses, ennui. So he was, um, I suppose what we would now call um, depressive. Um, he was a very melancholy figure in many ways. And the success of Bond was a bit of a double-edged sword to him. It's what he really wanted, um, but he found a, a lot of pressure. And and as I say, he stretched himself. He didn't simply repeat the formula. That It is not simply the case that, you know, all the Bond novels are, um, you know, here's the villain, they've got the megalomaniac 
plot to, to overtake the world and that's it. There's an enormous um, amount of, of range and particularly, you know, in things like his relationship with Tracy and Vesper, even in the first novel, there is quite a tragic undertone to quite a lot of his work. Mm-hmm. And I think that's, for me, as I've got old, I've sort of latched on to that and found that very interesting. Um, you know, because I think, like you were saying earlier, um, being British, you've got to grow up with James Bond. Roger Moore was my childhood Bond until Timothy yeah. Dalton took over in the uh, late 80s. And, I, and I've always, Licence to Kill is always that kind of, um, for me, a kind of coming-of-age movie. I was like 10 when yeah. I first saw that, and it was very different. I was like, wow, this is really interesting. And then it kind of, and then, uh, yeah, nothing was quite the same after that. Yeah. And I think in one way, you know, it, it survived because there are these different versions and you can sort of pick which one. But um, for me, definitely the bond of Casino Royale, of From Russia With Love, of On Her Majesty's Secret Service, The Living Daylights, The Story, and Octopussy. I mean, the, these are, um, I, I think, you know, the, these deserve to be taken seriously as as writing. Um, and yeah, there is there is something underlying, there is, there is a kind of darkness underlying uh, the glamour there. Okay, let's move into our final section. Now, Jeremy, you've got a new book coming out about Ian Fleming. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, I mean, it's uh, hopefully going to be out in um, about a week's time, and it's called Agent of Influence. And it's about a friend of Ian Fleming's, in fact, um, who was a a guy called Anthony Terry. And he was a a journalist who worked at the Sunday Times um, for most of the Cold War. And he was um, a correspondent for something called Mercury, which was the Sunday Times was part of a newspaper group. And uh, Fleming ran, I believe it was 86 of these correspondents all, all over the world. And it was called the Mercury Network. And a lot of them were um, MI6. It was a cover oh, of MI6. Okay. And so it's about it's it's focused on Anthony Terry and it's about how he influenced Fleming. So how um, a lot of the stuff that he reported on and a lot of the knowledge that he had Fleming used in his novels. But it's also about John le Carre, about Frederick Forsyth and about a few other people. But what what it's also about is espionage. So we talked about um, earlier about Fleming's uh, wartime experiences with intelligence. And there's been a lot uh, written about that. But I have been surprised how little has been written about Fleming during the Cold War. And the fact is that while he was writing the James Bond novels, uh, Ian Fleming was working for MI6. And this is something that's kind of a little bit in between the lines of the current literature. And so I'm kind of um, taking, I'm sort of extracting that, if you like, and taking that bit out and how MI6 used um, Fleming, how they used uh, other journalists uh, for propaganda purposes, the propaganda elements of the Bond novels, uh, and how um, this kind of um, activity, uh, the ethical considerations of it, but also how it shaped perceptions during the Cold War. The Bond novels were an enormous weapon during the Cold War. Um, They were a a Western, um, they were a a huge um, Western uh, advantage during the Cold War uh, in the cultural uh, standoff between East and West. We had James Bond and he was a kind of beacon for freedom. And I'm, I'm looking in a lot of detail. It's a sort of close reading 
of uh, newspaper archives, of um, I'm sort of triangulating various memoirs, and I'm trying to pick out um, how exactly this was done. Wow, this sounds like a brilliant book. And um, I'm assuming there's not much of official released material. Well, there's a, there's a, there's a surprising amount, really. Mm. Um, there was a, something called the Information Research Department, which was a foreign office propaganda unit set up by the Labour government in 1948. And they... Um, were behind things like, for example, I mentioned uh, Tokayev earlier. They were they were behind that guy, and there's there's quite a bit has been released from them. Um, there are various MI6 has released nothing, but I mean I found all kinds of um, references to you know uh, MI5 uh, information. I mean Anthony Terry was. Um, he was a commando. He was um, involved in the San Nazaire raid, and he was captured by the Nazis. And he became obsessed with uh, Nazi war criminals. So a lot of the stuff about, you know, Martin Bormann disappearing, and and you know, you know, Nazi treasure, and all of these kind of things, um, this really leads back to his reporting. So the Odessa file, for example, was started off because Frederick Forsyth read Anthony Terry Sunday Times um, journalism about it, um, and there's a, quite a surprising amount in the CIA files um, about this. Um, but probably the biggest source, I mean, um, Anthony Terry's um, stepdaughter found all his um, letters and all his uh, file. He had a huge kind of filing cabinet of stuff. And he died kind of slightly unexpectedly, slightly before he thought he was going to die. And he didn't destroy all of it. And um, so she came out with a uh, thin biography it's not very long um you know s- several years afterward after that that has a lot of you know just verbatim letters between him and fleming between him and mi6 agents and and operatives and all kinds of uh, weird stuff that you would not think would be in the public domain and really an admission i mean a straightforward confession by by terry that he was working for mi6 because we all associate, you know, it's not that surprising that MI6 use journalists. We, we, we kind of think of journalists as, as sometimes working as spies. But actually um, finding examples of that in the Cold War um, in Britain, um, hard evidence of it, is there's not that much of it. So I've tried to sort of put together a lot of that stuff. And um, some of it's quite weirdly, you know, in, in odd places. So there was a, a biography of um, John le Carre that came out, I think, five years ago by Adam Sisman. And he talks in that about how when le Carre was at Oxford uh, as a student, uh, I don't know how much you know about le Carre, but his, his dad was mm. a kind of con man. Yes, yeah. And his, as a result, all his dad's kind of businesses were going bust and he couldn't afford to pay the fees. So it looked like Le Carre was going to have to leave Oxford. And Le Carre was already spying for MI5 at that point. And um, they introduced him. This is all in Sisman's biography. And um, MI5 were worried. And so they introduced him to uh, MI6 and the editor of the Sunday Times. And they hatched this plan that Le Carre would be uh, a foreign correspondent for the Sunday Times, a left-wing correspondent. And he would be so respected as a left-wing correspondent. This was a long-term plan, decades-long plan, that he would you know, be able to go to you know, Prague and Budapest and all these places. And of course, he would be met by you know left-wing groups and yeah. he would then be able to report back to mi6 now this plan never took place but 
Le Carre didn't do that. But if he had done that at that time, he would have been reporting to Ian Fleming at the Sunday Times. Fleming would have been his boss. Um, now, that last bit is not in Sisman's book, mm. but uh, because I know what Fleming was doing, when I read that, I thought, hold on a minute. So I, there's a lot of that kind of thing where it's like different pieces of information by themselves might not seem that interesting. But then when you put them together, you get, you know, something that's a little bit more than, than has already come out. Yeah, it just sounds absolutely fascinating. And actually, you know, it's quite, um, it's very controversial in a way. The only reference I've ever heard of with um, regards to my six and journalists was with Richard Tomlinson's book, The Big Breach, because one of his criticisms of MI6 was their use of um, journalism as a cover because it endangers actual journalists. Yeah, that's a common criticism, and that's something mm. I discuss in this book. Mm. Uh, I mean, as you can tell, I've been down several rabbit holes um, with this. But um, my interest really started um, a few years ago um, when I was researching one of my novels, and I was trying to sort of tracking down some papers uh, from a, a British journalist, a clippings file, and there was a whole load of stuff from the Soviet press alleging this in the 60s. And I looked at that more closely, and I did a, a, a short documentary for Radio 4 about this. Um, I think it's called MI6 in the Media, and I think it's probably still on, on, on the BBC's website. Um, and when I was doing that, I think it, it's only like, I don't know, 25 minutes, half an hour long. And a lot of the people I interviewed talked about Fleming. Uh, particularly uh, Nigel West talked about how connected Fleming had been with MI6. But unfortunately... Um, as you will know from your your day job, uh, you you don't always have time for um, several narratives. So um, I was sort of faced with a situation where either I kind of went with the the broad narrative I already had, or it became a kind of James Bond uh, fest, a James Bond program. And so I, I I didn't have any of the Ian Fleming stuff in it, but it always stuck with me. Um, particularly Nigel West, um, you know quite detailed uh, discussion that we had in which he was really insisting you know Fleming was very very um you know not mobbed up but he was very spooked up you know he was really he was really in connection a lot with MI6 and they they were not exactly guiding because the best propaganda works if you if you um you know keep a sort of very loose leash because then he could go a bit crazy and do all sorts of stuff but in the end you know you could rely that Ian Fleming is going to create something that will make us look good so it was a sort of I, I would hesitate to call it outright propaganda but he was definitely helped he was working with mi6 he was he was knowingly providing uh, cover for mi6 operatives working at the sunday times um and some of the journalism that anthony terry was doing and others um you know who who was it serving? Uh, was it serving the readers? Were they trying to get the best story, or was this a kind of uh, disinformation or propaganda? You know, were they trying to uh, beat the Soviets? Uh, you know, or, or make a point about what the Soviets were doing and, and, and kind of get one up on them there? So that's kind of the the theme, if you like, mm. uh, of of the book. Yeah, and I suppose I suppose tactic wise, it sounds to me like it's very much of the World War Two mentality, isn't it? Of that kind of black propaganda and all that yeah i mean most of the people who were these correspondents for, for mercury which was i mean um if you like fleming was the kind of m figure of this he was controlling this network of correspondents and a lot of them had uh, been involved in british intelligence during the second world war and so obviously if you're mi6 uh, you move into the cold war um 
rather than start from scratch, it's quite a good idea to get people who you already know are up to the job, for example, speak fluent German or French or Russian, um, know, know the ropes and are discreet and know what to do. So a lot of uh, the biographies of a lot of very well-known journalists in the Cold War if you look at them, they will say, oh, you know, was attached to, you know, British intelligence in the Middle East during the Second World War. And of course, one reason why this hasn't had more focus is because this is so much closer to us. But also, the Cold War didn't really end in the same way. You know, Ian Fleming during his lifetime was pretty open in interviews about what he had done during the Second World War. But obviously, he wasn't going to give interviews and say, by the way, I'm still working for MI6 now. He, he was not going to blow his own cover. Um, and there was no definitive point where anyone said, you know, even after the collapse of the Soviet Union, no one was suddenly going to pop up and say, by the way, you know, that's what I've been doing. So it's gone much more under the radar than and, and it's much more it's much more of a gray area because uh, the Second World War, we're very clear about, you know, we won, <laughs> the Nazis were evil, and, and that's it. So that's, so for that reason, I thought it was worth, it's worth digging into a bit more, I think. No, definitely. I mean, I'm assuming that people thought the Cold War would end a lot faster than it actually did. So, um, yeah. yeah. Um, and do you, it, I mean, sorry, it's, it's such an interesting topic, actually. It, it, do you, is there much evidence that you've seen that it kind of continued on for years after Fleming, or did it kind of fizzle out as a, as a tactic? Do you mean, is it still being done? Well, yeah. Do you think it is still being done? I think it probably, to some degree, is uh, still being done. Um, and, you know, it will be up to people, um, you know, the, the next generation, if you like, of espionage historians. Because, you know, MI6 has not declassified, you know, things, you know, anything post-war. So it, it will be very difficult to find out. But, yeah, here and there you get hints. And, I mean, I'm not. I'm not claiming, by the way, to uh, don't want to give the wrong impression. I'm not claiming this is an entirely new discovery. It, it is known that, that that Fleming had intelligence uh, 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 links, but what I'm what I'm trying to do is sort of put more of a spotlight on that and investigate it more. Um, Frederick Forsyth had um, a memoir that came out, I think, two years ago now, and he, for the first time, admitted. Uh, in that, that he had worked with MI6 during his career uh, as a sort of roving agent, if you like. Um, and, you know, obviously he had denied, you know, he had never admitted that before. So we're finally getting the, to the stage where uh, there are a few admissions of this from the Cold War era. Um, but I think um, it will be many years. I mean, if someone were doing that today, uh, I think it will be many, many more years before we would find out about it. Yeah, it's usually people's retirement age. They decide to get a bit honest, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> when it doesn't matter anymore yeah. is, when they, is when they get a bit honest, yeah. Am I right remembering that um, the KGB used to um, buy up the Fleming novels and make their um, officers read them? I don't know if that's true or not. I mean, how would how would we know? I, yeah. think. I mean, I've, I've heard various versions of that, that they also used to watch all the films and all that kind of stuff. I mean, there was... There was massive interest, and and um, the Soviet media uh, did try to undermine uh, the Bond films, particularly, uh, but also Fleming. And there was all kinds of propaganda against them. There were attempts to have Soviet versions. Um, there was a Bulgarian uh, thriller writer who who uh, had his own hero who who goes up against the villain who's called 007 until mm. Fleming's estate intervened, and then he was called 07. <laughs> That's a guy called Andrei Guliashki. Uh, he manages to kill Bond, I think, in the end. Um, but you know, they had they, it was it was definitely um, felt as a as a propaganda force uh, in the Soviet Union. Yeah, 
Yeah, and I know every time a Bond film comes out, there's always a an obligatory interview with whoever's the head of MI6 where they, they say something in the lines of Bond's not the type of person we're looking for, but he is an incredible recruitment tool. Yeah, and I think he has been an extraordinary re- recruitment tool. I think that, that's been underplayed, even though those interviews always say it. Um, the, the image of British espionage is James Bond, essentially. I mean, you can talk about George Smiley or Harry Palmer, but, you know, it's a there's a, an aspirational image to Bond, uh, despite the fact that, you know, he's a cold-blooded, uh, you know, assassin at certain points. Uh, he's got all sorts of terrible attitudes. Uh, he's, you know, if, he's incredibly unfit in some ways as well. And I think on the first page of Casino Royale, he's having his 70th cigarette of the day, which is, would not make him get past many obstacle courses. But nevertheless, I think um, yeah, around, around the world, um, you know, Bond has been this kind of, um, you know, flag bearer for both Britain, but also for the reputation of British intelligence and MI6 in particular. Mm. Well, Jeremy, thank you so much for this chat today. That is, that is very thank interesting. Um, where can listeners find out about you and your work? Probably the best place is to go to my website, which is jeremy-duns.com, and that has um, you know blurbs on all of my books, and it also has at the bottom of the page a link to my Twitter page and my Facebook page as well. So that's probably the best. Brilliant, cool. Thank you. Thank you. For more information about the podcast, visit our website at drycleanercast.co.uk. Thanks for listening.